downstairs. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Rose comes up to me, and she says, hey, I, I need some help today. <laughs> no problem, Rose. What, what can I do? She's like, I just need you to ask me a question. And I knew at that moment I was in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, she loves, she loves Jesus. <laughs> um, we're in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're making our way through. Uh, one of the things we do here, we preach expositionally. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, so that we'd understand the full context of the message. We'd understand why God has given us um, each book of the Bible and how to rightly apply it. So uh, we're going to be in chapter 5 today. Now before we dig in, I want to just give uh, two truths that are going to help us as we dig into God's word this morning. Uh, number one, the Bible's meant to be read Christocentrically. And so what that means is that the whole Old Testament moves forward and points to the reality of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the things that we have said here in this church, and especially in this sermon series, is that um, the, the Bible moves from shadows to reality. In the Old Testament, we have all these shadows that are pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ. Or think of it like this. When you're driving down the highway and you're going to, let's say, some vacation destination, Disneyland, or you pick your destination, uh, there's often billboards along the highway with pictures, uh, giving directions, um, showing you know, what the vacation spot looks like. It'll tell you exit numbers. It'll tell you how much further you have to go. Those billboards are for the purpose of directing you towards the destination. They're, they're just pictures of what it's going to look like when you get there. But when you get to the destination, you don't then go back to the billboards and take your pictures there, right? Because you're at the reality. You're at the destination, the place that those billboards were pointing you to. And so uh, that's how the Old Testament operates, is, it, is it's moving us and it's directing us forward to seeing and understanding the reality of Jesus Christ. And that's important for multiple reasons, but here in the book of Hebrews, the church is wrestling with abandoning their faith and going back to Judaism. The reason, because they've been persecuted, they've been suffered, they've been beaten, and so they're going, man, if we go back to Judaism, we won't experience any of this. Life will be easier. And so the author's saying, wait a minute. You can't go back to the shadows, They've moved us to the reality of Jesus. To abandon Christ would be foolish. And so that's, that's point number one just that we, we need to understand as we're moving into this text. Number two, high priest is a high priest is necessary in order to have a relationship with God. And so we're going to be talking about the priesthood today and what it is that Israel had, had high priests and what it is that Jesus is a high priest. And I realize that when we start talking about this, like we don't use the word priest a lot in our language. And in fact, um, probably about 200 years ago, if we went back there, almost everyone would understand a high priest. Surely, if we went 500 years ago, everyone would. But in today's, today's culture, 
The idea of priesthood has a little bit been lost, a lot because new religions are kind of being formed, and they're being formed based upon um, really, really whatever uh, different cultures are there and based upon likes and dislikes of other religions. And so the idea of priesthood has largely, largely been lost, but it's essential in understanding the gospel and the Bible. And in fact, when we're going through books like books like Psalm in the Old Testament, we see them regularly crying out and, and professing their desire to be in the presence of God. Like Psalm 1611 will say this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 26 verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 27 4, the one thing that I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire upon his temple. Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who will sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell on your holy hill? And last one, Psalm 24, 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? continually just the the author is saying i want to be in the presence of god i just want to be where god is i want to dwell i want to live in his presence but as you go through the bible we're faced with the question how is it that a perfect holy righteous god can dwell with sinful wicked men the answer is the high priest and we know the purpose of the bible is to show how man is able to live in the presence of God because you start out with Genesis 1 and 2 God creates man we live with him in a garden sin comes we're separated but when we go all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 we see once again God has a people who will from this time forever dwell in his presence so the purpose of creating man in his image is that one day they would forever dwell in his presence enjoy his blessings the Bible, and in between those bookmarks is how that happens, and a key aspect of that, an essential aspect, is the priesthood of uh, Jesus Christ, that he comes as our greater high priest. And so what we're going to see today is that because Jesus is the greater high priest, we can be saved and enjoy God forever. And so what I want to do is just ask you to stand, and uh, we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so just to remind ourselves that God's word comes with this full authority. It's inspired by the Spirit for the purpose of equipping us. So here we go, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, I just pray as we look at this text that there are strange things that are mentioned here, things that are just not normal in our everyday language. And yet you have given them to us that we would know them, that we'd be encouraged, that we would better understand the gospel and the fact that we can have salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I ask that you give wisdom right now to us. May we be humble in our own spirits, that we would learn, that we would listen, that we would receive the truth that you have given, that we'd be corrected, that we'd be equipped, that we'd be trained in righteousness, that we would see and that we would savor the truth that only in Jesus Christ is there salvation, and there is hope in no other name. So Lord, be with us this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so before we jump in, let me just say this. Uh, this is the second time now that the author has introduced the idea of Jesus as the high priest. He did that in chapter 2, verses 14 through, I think, 18. And then right after that, he paused. And he went into chapters 3 and 4 where he warned us to not be like Israel. And now he's going to introduce the idea of uh, the high priest again. And he does that starting at the end of chapter 4. And then at the end of our text, he's going to stop and he's going to pause again. And this time he's going to give the church a warning. And there's many warning passages in Hebrews. And he's going to give us a warning. And one of the things he's saying is, we need to be really careful that we listen and understand what it is that Jesus is our high priest. He wants to make sure we know that this truth is absolutely essential. So he gives this warning. He even calls the church, many of you are young, immature. You should have matured past this point. You should know these things, but you don't. So he gives this warning, and then, starting in chapter 7, he's going to unpack further what he kind of just gives us a sampler here in verses 5, 1 through 10. So this is, this is like an appetizer, this is like a snapshot of what he's going to unpack much more detail in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. But this is, um, once again, where we start. So I say that. We're going to be introducing a lot of things here. Guys like Melchizedek, we're going to talk a little bit about, but we're going to come in a lot more detail later. And so um, I just want you to know how that progresses through this book. And so if you still have some questions at the end of this, and you're still going, but wait, how does that work, and why is that so important? He's spending four more chapters on everything that we see in, this, in, this, in these ten verses. So... Um, but what he does in these verses, he starts out by describing the priests of Israel, the high priests of Israel, and then he's going to show um, Jesus Christ as our high priest. And so he's going to give three qualifications of the Israelite high priest, and then he's going to show how Jesus meets those three qualifications and is an even greater high priest than those of Israel. And so that's the way the, the text moves. It's kind of divided in half, verses 1 through 4 about the Israel, and then verses 5 through 10 on Christ. And so we're going to use three words uh, to describe the Israelite high priest, and then we'll use those same three words to look at how Jesus is the greater high priest. So number one, solidarity. 
a word that we might not use all the time either. Um, but it means that, G, that the high priest is a man just like all the other men. He's united with the other men of Israel, with other people. He is a human. Goats, bulls, sheeps. Sheeps? I think sheep is plural. Sheep, mountains, trees. None of those can be a high priest for, for many reasons. But one, they are not human. And to be a high priest, you must be a man. And we see, um, look at verse 1, a high priest is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. High priests are called to represent man before God, therefore they must be human. And so what does this high priest do as he represents us before God? Keep going, verse 1, they offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And each year, Israel would celebrate a day called the Day of Atonement. And you can go read about this in Leviticus 16. It's the, the key part of the book of Leviticus. It's the key part of the entire Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is the most important day of the year for an Israelite. Because on this day, the high priest would take a bull, and he would sacrifice it. And, and that bull was a sacrifice for his sins. And so because he is a sinner, he would, make, he, would, he would kill this bull. And then after that, he would kill a goat on behalf of the people of Israel. And he killed that goat because they also are sinful. And then after he would make these sacrifices, he would take the blood of the bull. He would go into the Holy of Holies where there's the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat which sits on top of the Ark. And he would sprinkle blood on it. And he would do that for himself. And then he would go get the blood of the goat, and he would come in for the blood of the people, and he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the mercy seat as well. And he does this because Leviticus, Leviticus 16.30 says this, For on this day shall atonement be made for you, to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So this sacrifice that the high priest would do every single year, a bull for himself, a goat for the people, was for the purpose of obtaining forgiveness for all of Israel, that they would be able to enjoy God, that God would be able to dwell with them, that, that they would experience his blessings. So that's, that's number one, his solidarity with the people, he represents them. Number two, sympathy. In verse two, we read the high priest is gentle, with the ignorant and the wayward, you might say, well, why is he gentle? Because he's beset with weaknesses. He's a sinner. We've already seen that. He offers two sacrifices. Verse 3, it says he had to offer a sacrifice for himself. And then he had to offer a sacrifice for the people. So because he's sinful, because he knows what it's like to face temptation, to face trials, he can, he can come and he can give grace he can be gentle with the people of Israel. He can understand their pains. He can understand why sometimes they're not faithful, why sometimes they deviate from God's word. And so he is gentle with them. Next thing, uh, we see the word selection. The high priest is appointed by God. No one just becomes a high priest by their own accord. And this is made clear in verse 1 where it says every high priest is chosen. And in verse 4 it says they must be called by God. Now, there's a story. I encourage you. Uh, you got to go read Leviticus 16 later. Then you can go read number, Numbers 16 later. In Numbers 16, there's a man named Korah. And Korah comes with two other guys, Abiram and Datham. And they're a little upset. 
And they got two real accusations against, um, against Moses and Aaron. And their primary accusation is that Aaron is a high priest and he gets to go into the Holy of Holies and that's not fair. They don't like it that they don't get the same privileges as Aaron. Now they also come from the line of Levi. They are priests. They do get to go into the temple. They actually have a lot of privilege. In fact, according to the rest of Israel, they're much more privileged than they are for they get to have this access into the temple. But they don't have as much privilege as Aaron to go into the Holy of Holies. And so they're upset. And this is what they say. Number 16.3. You have gone too far, pointing at Aaron and Moses. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So do you see it? Why do you exalt yourself? Why do you think you're better? Why do you get to do what we want to do? And so to prove that they did not choose this for themselves, but that this was appointed to them by God, God tells them, okay, you tell these men to set themselves apart from the rest of Israel. And in the morning, God will show whom he has chosen. And so Moses even stands up and he says, look, if these guys die in any normal way, then know that uh, God has not appointed us to be in the positions that we have. But if something supernatural happens to them and the earth swallows up, then know that God is the one who has appointed us. And so, of course, the next day, you got um, Korah, Abiram, and Datham, and 250 other guys who are supporting them. And they stand there before Moses and Aaron, challenging them in their arrogance. And we're told the ground opens up and swallows Natham, Abiram, and Datham whatever those three guys are, swallows up those three guys, Korah and those guys, and fire comes down and destroys the 250 other chiefs, making it abundantly clear Moses and Aaron did not make themselves high priests, but God himself has appointed them into these positions that they have. And so, so this is where, where verses 1 through 4 are taking us. We have a high priest who is a man who is sympathetic with the sins and the people of Israel, and he is appointed by God. Now remember, we read Christocentrically, so we're in the Old Testament, and a question we're always asking ourselves is, how does this move us to Christ? How do we understand this in light of who Jesus Christ is? And so now, now the author is going to switch gears, and he's going to show how Jesus not only meets these qualifications, but is a far greater high priest. And so we begin with the solidarity. The author has gone through great pains to make sure that you, that I, that, the, that we who read, that the church would know, Jesus, yes, is the Son of God. He's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He is divine in every way. He is infinite in power. He's the one who created the world. And we read in chapter 1, he's the one who sustains the world. And yet, at the same time, he has made it abundantly clear, Jesus is man. And there's a mystery there. He's fully man, he's fully God. There is mystery, we, we understand that to a degree, but yet there is going to be areas that we just don't understand. How is that possible? But we see in verse 7, where it says, in the days of his flesh. So the author's referring 
to the 30 plus years that Jesus lived on this earth as a man. And he wants us to know Jesus is a man like you and I. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus, who's infinite and divine, was made a little lower than the angels, was made like you and I. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Because you and I, flesh, blood, Jesus comes, flesh, blood. Chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So, as human as you are, the Bible wants us to know Jesus is fully human. He's able to be our high priest. He's able to represent us before God. But there is a difference. He is sinless. And he goes to great pains to show that. In fact, the entire New Testament wants us to understand, yes, Jesus is God, he's man, but he's sinless. In fact, we looked at this one last week, chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, remember, yet without sin. Everything you go through, he's gone through, yet he didn't sin. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. First John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Whole Bible wants us to know Jesus is God, and yet he is also fully man, but he's sinless. Remember, the high priest had offered two sacrifices. He had to offer a bull for himself, and then he had to offer a goat for the people. Now, a truth that the author is going to unpack much later as we get in to 7, 8, 9, and 10 is that Jesus comes and he offers one sacrifice. And he offers one sacrifice one time, not year after year after year after year, but he offers one sacrifice one time. Why? Because he's sinless. Because he is a man. He's able to represent us, and yet he is the greater high priest who offers one perfect sacrifice. And the crazy thing is, he's not only the high priest, but he is the sacrifice also. Who was killed at the cross, three days later rising, so we could be forgiven of our sins. So that's number one. He's a greater high priest. He's the greater man who has come, who represents us perfectly before God, offers the absolute perfect sacrifice so we could be forgiven. Number two, sympathy. We read the high priests are gentle with those who have sinned because they also wrestle with sin, because they know what it's like to be weak. So obviously we could then ask the question, if Jesus is sinless, does he know our pain? How is he able to be gentle with us? How is he able to understand what it's like to be tempted, what it's like to go through trials? Maybe you've asked those questions. Surely you've heard people who have asked those questions. Can Jesus really understand our suffering? And so there's two ways we can answer that. The long answer is last week's sermon. So I encourage you to just go back because that's what we impact like the entire time last week. Because when you're in chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Meaning, we do have a great high priest who knows your pain, who knows your weaknesses, who knows what it's like to go through trial, temptation, suffering. And it says, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He knows our temptation. 
and yet without sin. And in fact, in verse 7, in our text, we're given a glimpse of the life of Jesus. Look at, look at what we're told. We're told that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, what we often do is we would go straight to, straight to Friday. Well, surely this is talking about the day that he was arrested and crucified, right? I mean, that's, that's obviously what we're talking about. But that word days is plural. So this verse, verse 7, does not just describe Friday, which surely it does describe, but it describes his life. Meaning, throughout his life, he offered up prayers and supplications, loud cries to God, to the one who could save him. His life was characterized by prayer as he endured trials and pains and temptations. Upon beginning his ministry, we see that Jesus was homeless. He never had a place to lay his own head. He never had a place to stay. He was always staying with other people. His family thought he was crazy. If you remember that, they tried to, they tried to get him from the crowds. His hometown, Nazareth. Do you remember when he goes back there and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah? And do you remember how, the, how his hometown, his friends, his buddies, the people who, who knew him really well, do you remember how they responded? Let's take him up to the hill and throw him off. Of course, the Pharisees, they always wanted to kill Jesus. They never liked him. Even when he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is like the craziest thing in the world. He raises Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11 of John. And then at the end of that chapter, they're like, yeah, we should kill this guy. The guy who's got power over death. So regularly, he just faces trials. He faces these pains, these sufferings. And of course, the night that he was arrested... The night that he was, the day that he was to be killed, we read this in Matthew 26. This is Jesus. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He turns to his disciples and he says, remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then we read in Luke 22, verse 44, when we're looking in this garden scene, and we're told, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Have you ever had that kind of agony? Have you ever experienced that kind of pain? That kind of trial? Where your sweat turned to blood? You see, one of the things we looked at last week in um, we're not going to get all back into is Jesus never gave in to the trials and temptations. So he understands their fullest power. You and I, we give in at some degree often. And so we, we don't know what it's like to fully resist sin and temptation all the time. But Jesus did. He knows the full weight of sin. He knows the full temptation, the full power that it's going to bring, and yet he did not sin. This is why he's able to be gentle with you and I. Because he knows exactly where you're at in whatever pain, whatever trial, whatever temptation you're going through. Do you know that? He knows exactly the pain that you're in. And yet... Because he didn't give in, he knows exactly the grace you need to stand firm. 
You get that? Like the high priest, he might not be able, the high priest of Israel might not be able to fully relate. He doesn't know your situation. He doesn't know your pain. But Jesus, he knows your pain. He knows your trial. He knows your temptation. He's full, he's experienced the full weight of that. And by never giving in, he knows exactly the grace you need right now. So whatever you're going through, Whatever the difficulty is, it's at home, it's at work, it's with relationship, it's with a health issue, whatever that is, he understands. And not only does he understand, he's compassionate, he's sympathetic, which means he's moved to action. He doesn't just say, oh, that's too bad, and just have nothing to do. But he is moved to action, where he knows your pain, he knows you're hurt, and he then gives grace. And that's what we looked at last week. Every time we pray, he gives grace. And he knows exactly the grace you need to stand firm. Um, and in verse 8, then, we read, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so I, one, of the, one of the commentaries I was reading, a theologian, he wrote this, which I thought it was really helpful, because we kind of have this question, so what does it mean he learned obedience? So he, he wrote this. He said, to say that Jesus learned obedience does not mean that he was formally disobedient. Any more than saying he became a merciful and faithful high priest means that he was formally callous or faithless. The, the verse, however, emphasizes Jesus' humanity and perfect devotion to God. Often, when suffering comes our way, we do whatever we can to avoid it or find another path. But Jesus' first aim was not to avoid suffering, but to trust in God and do his will in the midst of suffering. We saw that in that Matthew 26, verse 38 and 39, where he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Right? That's what we want. There's nothing wrong with that. But then he says... But not my will, but as you will. More than anything, in the pain, in the trial, in the suffering, he says, I want your will. Jesus' first aim was not his pleasure, was not his comfort, but the will of God. And because Jesus was obedient in the midst of suffering, we see in verse 9 that he was perfect. Now remember, perfect doesn't mean he was imperfect and that he, he became better or he improved in some degree, but rather just as we saw in chapter 2, verse 10, when we read um, about the perfection of Jesus, it means that he is fully qualified to be our high priest. Because of Jesus' suffering, because Jesus suffered in his humanity, he is fully qualified. He is perfect to be our high priest. That's why in chapter 2, verse 18, the author tells us that he gives us grace to stand firm when we are tempted because he's the perfect high priest. He knows exactly what we're going through. So those are the first two parts. Jesus is the greater priest because he's the greater man. And he is, and he is the greater high priest because he's not only, he's, he not only understands our pain, but he does so better than the Old Testament high priest and he's able to give us the exact grace that we need. And number three, selection. We saw the Old Testament high priests are appointed by God. And this is really a key point here. The author makes it abundantly clear. Verse 5, Jesus was appointed by God to be the high priest. He then gives two Old Testament texts to prove that Jesus was appointed by God. 
First one comes from Psalm 2. Second one comes from Psalm 110. Again, we're going to get into these more in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. But interesting, Psalm 2 has nothing really to do with Jesus being a high priest. But really, it says that Jesus is the perfect king who has come to rule the nations. And so we're told that Jesus is going to be a king, and he's appointed by God to be king. And then we go to Psalm 110, which he quotes, and he says, Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Which then makes us go, why are we talking about kingship, and why are we talking about a guy named Melchizedek? Those are good questions. And in chapter 7, he's going to jump a lot more into Melchizedek. Let me just, a couple things. All the priests in Israel come from one tribe. Do you remember that name of the tribe? It was? Hey, that was good. That was group group participation right away. From the tribe of Levi. Um, But Jesus doesn't come from Levi. Okay, where does he come from? That was not as good. It was like four people. It was from the tribe of Judah, right? Priests don't come from Judah. Who comes from Judah? Kings. So we get the idea, okay, that makes sense. Jesus is going to be the greater king, Psalm 2, right? We get that. But how is he a priest? Priests come from Israel, but in Genesis 14, we're introduced to this guy who comes on the stage and then disappears really fast. And we just kind of go, that's weird. And it's this guy named Melchizedek. And he comes and he blesses Abraham and he praises God. And we're told that he's a priest forever, and we're told that he's a priest of the Most High God. So he's this priest that kind of appears out of nowhere. We're told that he's a priest for the Most High God, and he blesses Abraham and praises God. Now, some people say that this was like a Christophany, like like Melchizedek's not a real person, but he was just a, a, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. But that's not really how the Bible talks about him. It talks about he was a real person. But we're told that he also is a king priest. Well, that's interesting. Never in Israel do we have a king priest. But we are given a glimpse of a guy in Genesis 14, and he appears once again in Psalm 110. That's it. That's it. No one else mentions him until we come to the book of Hebrews. Then all of a sudden, he's going to base chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 on this guy. And so what we understand is that Jesus comes as a king priest, unlike any other priest. His priesthood is not after the order of Levi, but we're told twice in verse 6 and verse 10. Those verses bracket the section talking about Jesus. And we read twice that he that Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. That is his high priesthood. So Jesus comes as a high priest who will hold his priesthood forever, and he's not only a priest, but he's also a king. Now again, we'll get to this more later, but for now, what do we need to, why is this important today? How does that relate to our text now? Because it brings us to verse 9. And verse 9 is the key part of this passage where we read Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Okay, so we got to get this. Priests make it possible to have access to God. 
That's what they do. The Old Testament priests, the only reason, the only way God is going to be able to dwell in Israel is because the priest makes a sacrifice for himself, and then he makes a sacrifice for the people of God. But he's got to do that every year, all the time. Why? Well, because the sacrifice isn't sufficient. It's not good enough to fully cleanse the people, and he has to do it every year, and we need a lot of priests, right? Because they die. It's kind of what humans do. So because they keep dying, we keep needing more priests, and we need these priests to make more sacrifices, and really, we're just kind of going, if we could just have one really good priest who could offer one really good sacrifice, we'd be done with this whole bloody mess, right? And that's how we move then to the fact that Jesus Christ comes, and he's like the priests of the Old Testament in Israel but he's greater. He comes from a different order. He's the king priest who offers one sacrifice, one time, himself, so that all who obey him could have what? Eternal salvation. Now, what does that mean? It means at least two things. One, Jesus reigns forever as our king priest. We'll never have another one. His priesthood, his salvation that he offers, the cleansing that he gives is forever. So when you believe in Jesus, what does that mean? You are saved forever there's assurance there because the priesthood will never change our salvation is assured in him now this is this is an objective truth claim that the bible is making saying that this is true for all people there's only one high priest there's only one way to have access to god I mean, really, the, what he's unpacking here in just different words is John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Here we have Jesus is the only high priest who offers eternal salvation for all who obey him. Same thing. Jesus is the only access point we have to God. And only by faith in him are we saved. Um, but the thing is, our world doesn't really like truth claims, right? They like subjective truths. Things that are true for you, but might not be true for me, which is great when we're talking ice cream, right? Like your favorite ice cream, whatever. That can be true for you. You can like, I don't know, vanilla, <laughs> chocolate chip, whatever. That's like all I could come up with right then. Well, you know, like when you go to the Safeway now, there's no longer just like vanilla, mint chip. There's like, what, mint moose tracks. Like there's, they're creating words and flavors. Anyways, um, so in our house, mint moose tracks is actually one of the favorite. Isn't that? It's the best. <laughs> Full affirmation. So it's the best. That's Hannah's truth. Right? Now, is there anything wrong when we talk like that about ice cream? No. The problem is, is when we want to talk about salvation that way. Well, my way of salvation is really great. Well, my way of salvation is really great. But the Bible says there's one priest. And the priest is the only way we can have access to God. Now, some people will say, well, I don't need a priest. Well, that's because your God's not that great. Like, think about it. Those who say, well, we don't, we, we don't need a priest. Really? Well, your God's not very holy, is he? Because when we come to the Bible, we have this holy, infinite, powerful God who there's no way we can come into his presence. And yet he's gentle with us and he loves us and he sends his son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sins so we could have access to him, so we could enjoy him forever. 
And so one of the things that we're wrestling with in our culture today is that people want to just kind of make and believe what they want. And we see this in the church in various ways or people who might just say that they're religious. And there's a word now that's being used a lot in Christian circles, and it's this word, word used, deconstructionism. Have you heard that? Let me give you a definition of deconstruction. Deconstruction, and I forget the author of this, um, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with, Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. So here's the point. Someone grows up in church. This might be you. You understand the key tenets of the, of the faith. You understand the Apostles' Creed. You affirm the Apostles' Creed. But later you start going, hmm... I don't know if I like really the Bible's position on, on LGBTQ, on the role of women, on marriage, on divorce, on really what it says about sin. I, I don't know that I like this idea that Jesus is the only way. And so what I'm now going to do is I'm going to look at the Bible. And I'm going to pick a few things that I like. And, and then I'm actually going to look over here at some of these other religions. And I'm going to pick a few things that I like there also. So when you're talking to someone who's deconstructing, you got to listen a lot. Like, what are they affirming and what are they not affirming? you, you got to understand where they're at, which, which can be difficult. But in essence, let me say it like this. Do, do you remember, do you remember Sizzler? The restaurant. Is there a Sizzler anymore? I haven't seen a Sizzler for like years. I remember as a kid going to Sizzler. Why is Sizzler so good? Buffet. Right? Get what you want. You walk in and you're like, man, I can get, you know, if you're like one of those people that like rabbit food, they got tons of just like salad selections, right? Or they got like their meat selection and their pizza selection and the best part, like the dessert selection, right? And so you pay one price and, and you get whatever you want. And that, that's great at Sizzler. But what happens is now it's being very popularized that religion can be a buffet. And you can pick and choose a few things that you like here. And then you go pick a few, a few things that you like over here. And you just put them on your plate. But here's the thing. What do five-year-olds do when they go to Sizzler? Where do they go? Where do they go? Do they go to the, the rabbit food selection? Seriously, like that's just every time. I eat salads now, but I'm like, it's still just rabbit food. Um, but like, they don't ever go there. Ever. They're over here. Pizza, dessert. All they want. Because they want what they want. Because they like it. It's easy. It's comfortable. And it just tastes so good. And in our sin, that's all that we want. I just want things that make me feel good. I want things that affirm who I am. But here's the thing. When we come into the Bible, we're told that we are sinful people. We need a priest who makes a sacrifice so we can be forgiven and have access to God. There's no buffet when it comes to the Bible. And this becomes abundantly clear when we see who receives salvation. Notice how 
how the author says, who gets salvation? Verse 9, all who obey him. Now, he's not saying we earn our salvation. He's not saying if you're good enough, like, like Rose with the Ten Commandments, I've kept all the commandments, I'm good, right? No. But in fact, if you remember when we were in chapters 3 and 4, the author told us why Israel didn't enter the promised land, why they didn't enter the very rest of God. And he said it in two ways. And he did it back to back. Chapter 3, verse 18, the reason they didn't enter was because they were disobedient. Number two, the reason they didn't enter is because they did not believe. Well, which one? Were they disobedient or they did not believe? Yes. Because our actions, our faith is displayed through our actions. Our faith is displayed through our actions. And those who believe in Jesus obey the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. It's not a buffet that we come and we pick and we say, well, I like this part. I don't like this book. I don't like this idea. I don't like this topic. But rather, we're given Jesus' words and we're told in Matthew 28, we go make disciples and what do we do? We baptize and we teach them all the words of Jesus. And here, we're told that everyone who receives the salvation from the great high priest does what? They obey him. Why? Because they believe in him. They believe in him. And I just want you to think, everything about this priesthood is all grace. Because how is it we have a priest? Because God appointed us one. Everything about our salvation is by grace. Everything. The reason you're saved. The reason God answers your prayers. The reason he gives you grace when you're hurting, in your trials, in your temptations. The reason why we can have eternal life all by grace in God giving us a high priest. And we want to say, no, no, I think I can come up with a better way. And reject the very grace of God. So I, I want to close today just with the idea, with the question of, is Jesus your high priest? Do you know that he's your high priest? Are you trusting in him alone? Do you know that you're believing in him, that you're seeking to obey him, desiring to obey him, and that you have assurance of salvation? Or are you here today and you're kind of wrestling through, I like this, and I like this, but I don't like this. And are you trying to create your own way? Because the Bible's message is just very clear. There's one high priest and he's made one sacrifice so we could enjoy one salvation and have life everlasting with him. And it's only through Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you, you know that truth. And if you have questions about that, if you're wrestling with that, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. Our other elders would love to pray with you. I'm sure just people around you would love just to talk with you about that. Walk through where the doubts may be, what you're wrestling with. But I want you to understand that According to the Bible, according to God, there's only one way we come to him, and it's through his great high priest. So let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now, and we, we praise you that you've given us a high priest. You've given us a high priest who saves us perfectly, who made one sacrifice for one time so that we could enjoy a forever salvation. 
And I just pray that everyone here would, would know that truth, would understand that. And if there's any reason why, why they're not embracing it, I pray that they would talk with others. I pray they would share their concerns, their doubts, their wonderings, that we might pray with them, that we might be able to talk with them. But Lord, we just pray that you would give wisdom, that you would continue to give grace, and that you would help us all better understand that the only reason we are saved is by your grace and the giving of a high priest. Jesus Christ, who's a man, who's gentle, who saves us perfectly, and has been appointed by you. In your name, Jesus, amen.